welcome everybody uh, to a podcast about another podcast about a topic which Brian and I have been really focusing recently uh, PARP inhibition you'll be aware we did one uh, recently on the ODAC decision um, around Alaparib and BRCA and we discussed the pros and cons of that with Jorge Garcia I'm delighted to be joined today by Niraj Agarwal uh, and Niraj is going to talk about the most recent FDA approval of a PARP inhibitor uh, based off uh, a prospective randomised phase three study in prostate cancer. Niraj, welcome and talk to us a little bit about the drug, its approval and the study that supported that. Thank you, Tom and Brian. So this is Alapro 2 phase three trial which was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial comparing enzalutamide plus placebo versus enzalutamide plus talazoparib in patients with the newly diagnosed metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. There were two cohorts. Cohort first had 803 patients, and cohort two, which first cohort only recruited patients with who were all comers. They did not really look at who was positive or negative for HRR mutations. And then cohort two only looked at patients who had HRR positivity. So after first 803 patients were enrolled in cohort one, the data we presented earlier this year, we continued with the recruitment of HRR positive patients. And if you combine 169 patients, HRR positive patients from cohort one and 269 patients in cohort two, we have 399, so approximately 400 patients who are HRR positive and they had first line, they were in first line MCRPC. So FDA approval. Yeah. Can I, please. I'm sorry to interrupt, can I ask you a question? This sort of overlapping cohorts, was that? intentional the way that the two cohorts rolled out or or not i mean I know it was, was intentional but was it pre-planned from the start or intentionally yeah. confusing to make these podcasts difficult i mean <laughs> which one was it <laughs> yes so the first all comer population was over 803 patients and 169 of them had hrr positivity so obviously this was based on agreement with the regulatory bodies that to get to 400 patients, one option is to accrue additional 400 patients, or you can just use all those HRR positive patients, which are already recruited, and then add 269 patients to reach to the 400 mark. Okay, you just extended recruitment in the HRR to reach 400? Yes. Approximately. Okay, thank you. So FD approval is based on those 400 patients who had HRR you know, positive. Sorry for interrupting again. Yeah. Do you want to just describe to us before the results of the original Tarapo study, which looked at the um, the ITT population? We did a, a podcast on you previously, which I'm gonna I'm gonna quiz you on in a second. But just give me a story of where we are with this before the HRR cohort was recently presented at ESMO. What did we know before that? Yeah, so the first all-comer cohort, 803 patients, the primary endpoint was radiographic progression-free survival, and there were several other secondary endpoints. But the most important aspect, in my view, 
was the prospective tissue testing done on 100% patients in this trial and the HRR status being used as a stratification factor for randomization. Those were the highlights of the trial compared to other trials, I would say, uh, who and, selected, uh, who included all comer patients. Yes, Brian. And, and Neeraj, just to, to interject about the testing. So I know this was, I believe it was foundation one. And was this all tissue or some tissue, some blood? Did some patients have both? How did the HRR gene set get decided? Because I know it wasn't identical across trials. Yes. So in this patient, in, in Etalapro 2 trial, in the first like unselected patients, everyone has tissue testing done. Everyone. And in additional, about approximately 20% patients also had ctDNA testing done. It doesn't mean that we know the HRR negative status of all patients. There were about 20% patients where HRR status was still not determined despite doing tissue testing and even ctDNA testing. And those are the challenges we face in the real world. But to, to address that deficiency, we presented the data on HRR positive patients and HRR negative patients who were negative by prospective tumor tissue testing, where tumor tissue testing was able to glean the HRR status based on the genes. And really, we did not see any any different results in HRR unknown patients or HRR negative patients based on tumor tissue testing. Okay, so what we've got is in the original all-comer study, the HRR for the 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 the, the, DF, the PFS for the HR deficient population has a ratio of 0.46. The curves go apart, they stay apart nicely in a stepwise approach. For the non-deficient or the unknown, it was 0.7. And then when you look at OS and that was presented in the HRR deficient cohort, it was essentially 0 0.7 uh, in the um, in deficient cohort. And it was 0 0.9 in the um, in the all comer cohort. So 0 0.9 in all comers. And that's kind of where we got to. And I think the conclusion of that was that it was going to be really exciting to look at the HRR cohort of Talapro 2, which was presented by Karim uh, and you were involved in the last author. And, and and do you want to talk about that larger study because it was that in, it was that enriched study for the HRR cohort and what that showed and why the FDA approved that specifically and not the all-comer cohort or the BRCA cohort? Of course. So let's focus on the HRR positive cohort presented by Dr. Karim Fizazi in uh, ASCO meeting, ASCO annual meeting just a few weeks ago. So in this patient population who are all HRR deficient patient patients, there was a 55% reduction in risk of death. As you said, Tom, HR has a ratio of 0.46. And interestingly, the overall survival trends are quite uh, remarkable. Uh, the hazard ratio is 0.69, the 31% reduction of death. Uh, and uh, obviously, this data are immature, so we have not uh, seen the maturity of data, and we cannot really say overall survival is positive, but trends are quite remarkable, quite compelling. 
So, Niraj, I want to ask you about that HRR cohort. I think we'd all agree that the BRCA cohort does amazingly well in any trial with hazard ratios in the 0.2 range, kind of for all endpoints. Kareem presented some an interesting slide that broke down that that HRR subset into BRCA and then a few different non-BRCA subsets, if you will. And it looked like it wasn't all the same, right? There was a differential effect on RPFS against small subsets, depending on sort of which HR group you fit in. Do you do you do you put any stock in that? Should we be thinking that granularly or should we be lumping them together? This is a question we all struggle with uh, in our clinic on a regular basis, as all of us, uh, I think. So if you look at the, if I just look at the result, uh, the forest plots for efficacy, and I just look at the CDK12, just for the sake of discussion, because this was present in about 20% patients in the HRR positive cohort, we see a hazard ratio of 0.49. And Tom, I don't really want to get into numbers, but this is quite I love impressive. numbers, Niraj. I love okay. <laughs> okay, great. I, I hope I'm not making it too boring by quoting numbers. No, 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 I love numbers. Seeing... The more numbers, the better on these podcasts. <laughs> Fantastic. The 50% reduction risk of RPFS, radiographic progression, in CDK12 patients, CDK12 positive patients. This is quite compelling. If you look at PALB2, still we see 44% reduction risk of progression. And then you start going to multiple other subsets other than ATM, where we saw 25% reduction in risk of progression uh, in ATM patients. You go beyond ATM and CDK12 and BRCA1 and BRCA2. Sometimes these numbers are in single digit in each arm. So obviously we cannot do a trial which is powered for each of these individual gene subsets. And my take on this is, we appreciate FDA uh, approving for all HRR positive patients. It's similar to what we saw with the profound trial. Olaparib got approved for all HRR mutations which were included in the trial, except PPR2, alpha 2, gamma, which was later considered not to be an HRR mutation. But if I have this drug available, if you're asking me if I'm going to use it, yes, I'm going to use it for all approved indication and if they don't benefit i can always stop the drug so this okay, is my take well, just, on. To, just to pick up on one of those issues on the atm cluster you said it was a 20 percent reduction i think actually the hazard ratio is 0.90 so it's a 10 percent reduction and i agree the confidence intervals are super wide the issue yeah. with atm is with alaparib we've shown, shown in multiple trials profound propel that atm cohort doesn't seem to be generating any benefit and there are parallels with favorable risk renal cancer in that when you're seeing consistent signals across multiple trials in a subset not working does that not cause you some concern yeah so i'm only talking about the atm only atm not the atm cluster in this one where hazard ratio was 0.76 and i i agree with you tom i i'm not saying we should be using parp inhibitor in all atm patients we know that it's a large gene the mutations can vary a lot and Sometimes patient responds, sometimes patient don't. But if I have this approval in my clinic, if I have the drug available, and patients have, say, I'm just talking about Olaparib for a moment because I have used Olaparib in patients who had ATM mutation, and they have disease progression on, say, enzalutamide, 
I have two options to use docetaxel chemotherapy for this patient who has slowly rising PSA level on enzalutamide and have ATM mutation, or I use olaparib because label is there and I can use it and there is hardly any copay for this patient. I have used olaparib in these patients. They have preferred not to start chemotherapy with docetaxel in this setting, and I have occasionally seen responses. So but, I do not know what is the right answer here. Yeah, I mean, Raj, it sounds like that rationale is because the other option being chemo, which is obviously quite a different toxicity profile. Patients don't want chemo, et cetera. Not so much that you believe there's great benefit, you know, across patients. There might be an individual patients, but to Tom's point, the ATM, whether it's cluster individual gene and this and other trials really hasn't hasn't shown any convincing benefit the way I see it. Now, I agree with you. Now, Niraj, there are very few upsides to appearing on these podcasts, to be honest with you, but there are a number of downsides, and particularly if you reappear on essentially the same topic, <laughs> because it allows us to go back to the previous podcast and see what you said and then question that. Uh, and so if we, the, if we knew what we were doing, we could actually pull up the recording. We don't, we don't have that. Yeah, we, could, we don't have the we don't have the facility. Yeah. We can barely we can barely get the sound right, let alone do some <laughs> de- fancy detail. Like. But in the previous podcast, you said that you didn't have to wait for overall survival, firstly. Um, and although the hazard ratio is 0.69 here in the ITT, in the uh, biomarker positive population, it's 0.9 in the ITT. And the hazard ratio does cross one. I realize it's an immature analysis and I'm, I'm not suggesting for a second there isn't a trend towards the survival in the HRR population. But at that point, you were saying actually you felt that this was an ITT drug and could be given to unselected patients. And it looks like the FDA disagrees with you now and it should be only given to selected patients. Do you now agree with the FDA? First of all, I was talking about the results we presented. Uh, I had that discussion with you, Tom and Brian, right after my presentation in yep. GeoASCO. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. Yes, where, you did. where it was like minutes after my presentation, and we stated that trial has met the primary endpoint of meeting improve of improving radiographic PFS in all comer population. So I was talking about the results of the trial. Of course, we have to listen to FDA. We have to abide by what they do you say. Agree, do you agree with them? Do you agree with them? I know we have to listen to them, but do you, I disagree with the EMA most of the time. Do you agree with the FDA on this issue or not? I think FDA has just approved it for HRR positive patients. They have not declined for HRR negative patients. I think just we are waiting for more data. I I really don't want to delve into the discussion of the sponsor with the FDA, but my understanding is that yes, we have the approval for the HRR positive patients. So currently you agree with the FDA and we shouldn't be treating the negative patients? Of course, I cannot, we should not be, yes. Pending more overall survival data in the ITT, I suppose. Yes, our conclusion in the paper, Tom, just taking 10 more seconds, our conclusion in the paper we published we ended by saying we need more long-term safety and survival data because be- before we can use this combination in HRR negative patients. Uh, now, 
the second mistake you made in that previous podcast, Niraj, <laughs> is you you suggested that Brian asked a fantastic question, uh, which had, which had never been the case before, and I still don't think it was a fantastic question. But the question was around the biomarker. Now, if you agree that the biomarker is important, how should we be using the biomarker? Is it okay to use a circulating biomarker? If if that's the case, which one? Should we be using foundation as was used in the study? So for those patients, for those clinicians at the moment who are going to adopt this on a biomarker positive population, and you feel that it should be the HRR population, not the BRCA population, as is the case for a laparib, under those circumstances, how should they measure the biomarker? Biomarker should be measured by any means possible. I think I'll just focus on first testing, universal testing for all patients with metastatic prostate cancer, rather than thinking about which company to use or which medium to use. Tissue is the gold standard, but we also know that it is very difficult in many patients to get tissue because of predominance of bone metastasis when older prostate cancer tissue has been lost or they have lost their quality or quantity just because the surgery was done 10 years ago or five years ago. In the absence of tissue testing, I'm absolutely supportive of ctDNA testing and germline testing. Of course, germline testing should be done for all patients, but I'm absolutely fine with using ctDNA testing as long as we are able to get to the objective, meet the objective of assessing the HRR status. So if I find HRR status to be positive, regardless of how we found that, I will like to do that. So either one, basically you're saying use what you have, tissue if you have it, if not blood, and if either one is positive, so to speak, altered. Absolutely. It's a negative, which is a problem. Yes, Brian. If negative can be questioned, if it's negative and it was not, if only CTDNA-based negative, then we know that some of the mutations are not picked up by ctDNA, like the BRCA2, yeah. You would do another biopsy then if if clinically feasible? Yes. Yep. Brian, um, I've got a question for you, if I may. So um, you and I chatted and you were part of ODAC with a laparib. You came forward um, with uh, a, a universal agreement that the alaparib data should be in a BRCA population. I don't know whether you had the discussion about whether it should be in the HRR population. Um, We now have these two, well, potentially assuming the FDA takes your advice and pursues the BRCA population, we're going to have two data sets which look to me to have more similarities than differences. I might, you know, one day put up some slides and not say which drug it is and see if the experts can which one work out which one's a laparib, etc. But as I think there are more similarities and differences between these data sets. And yet we're going down different approval pathways. That's going to be confusing for clinicians. Um, why have we ended up there? I think as you know, as I reviewed these data for this podcast, I think, you know, they're very the trials are very different in how they were conducted. Right. As Niraj said, there was prospective testing in the Talapro studies, the cohorts. So sort of a, a well-defined HRR status, if you will, versus Propel, where it, it wasn't stratified by that. And there was a very large percentage. I think it was 35 percent, if I remember correctly, of sort of uh, unknown. And I think 
the discussion at ODAC and FDA was that there could be a lot of contamination of that subgroup, either by BRCA or HR deficient, or who who knows? It was there were more uncertainties, and I and uncertainty is never a good thing, right? So I think it was those uncertainties that led FDA to conclude, well, the BRCA data is clearly strong and positive across trials, but for a laparib, whereas with Talipro, there wasn't that same degree of uncertainty because it was prospectively tested. So How to me, even though some of the numbers, right, even though to your point, if you look at some of the numbers for RPFS in the various cohorts, et cetera, there, there are a lot of similarities, right? HR is 0.45 and 0.46 for RPFS, so there's almost identical. But it was that uncertainty in the design of the trial that I think led to that different labeling. And Brian, were you asked specifically to look at your HR population? Because no doubt you're asked very specific questions. Could you have said, oh, we don't like, you know, we, we, we don't like the ITT population, but we like the HRR population? Or did you look at components of HRR like ATM and just say, you know, we should be going? What, what question were you asked in that, that ODAP meeting? So you're right. You, you do get asked very specific questions. Let me see if I can pull it up while we talk here, the actual question. Um, but it, there wasn't multiple questions like, oh, let's look at this and look at that and look at the other thing. Do you know what I mean? So it wasn't it wasn't the case that, you know, it was really around, if I remember correctly, and I'll find it while we're talking here from the documents. You know, I think you were asked specifically around the bracket question. Should, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get there. Should okay. should this drug be approved? You know, should the, should the label be restricted to a BRCA mutant subset? And then I, there was sort of a follow on question that not a follow on, but a maybe it's a follow on question that said, if you don't think it should be approved at all, then then say so. Like if you know, because it was sort of assuming it's going to at least be approved in BRCA. And do you agree, basically? Or. And I think there was one person who voted this way. If you just don't think the drug should be approved at all, then then say so. But had there been, you weren't asked about the HRR population. And it's possible, had the Correct. question been, was it, is this an HRR population? You might have come to the same conclusion that Niraj just came to, that actually there's quite a lot of uncertainty, but the numbers look okay. And actually it should be a wider application because it's, it's essentially 5% versus 25%. Is that right? Uh, 5% versus 25 for what? For the proportion of patients who are BRCA positive versus HRR positive. Yeah, well, the BRCA either, yeah. positive was about 10%, I think, in both trials. But but to your so point, then, could they could could ODAC and have come to a different conclusion? I suppose. But the F FDA asks questions for a reason, right? They ask a very specific question for a specific reason. There could be discussion around HRR, and I'm sure there was, you know, during that ODAC, but that's not the question. Um, I guess my last question to you, Niraj, is on the previous podcast, you talked about um, some um, synergistic act activity between um, PARP inhibition and um, and enzalutamide, potentially, and others have talked about that with abiraterone, clearly. Um, I'm getting a consensus over the last sort of three to four months that people are beginning to push back on that and saying if there was synergy between these two, we wouldn't be seeing such flat curves in the negative population. Has your opinion changed on that at all? So I, first of all, we do have preclinical data, obviously not very strong uh, in the sense that uh, prostate cancer, uh, without getting into the details of uh, preclinical modeling in the animals, Prostate cancer has not been a cancer which grows very well in the animal models. And a lot of data came from 
even earlier uh, laboratory setting and showing that when we block AR, the PARP upregulates and supports AR. When we stop or inhibit PARP, that downregulates androgen receptor. I don't know what to say when uh, people criticize, but uh, I can I can just quote you. As you said, you love numbers. I'll just quote <laughs> you the PSA time I to PSA progress. I It makes me very anxious, Niraj. I'm very anxious suddenly. <laughs> yeah, I'll just give you the give you the number. The progression-free survival radiographic PFS in Talapro2 HRR positive cohort is 11 month with enzalutamide in the first non MCRPC setting, and it is 28.6 month with the combination arm Talazoparib plus enzalutamide. We are these are just numbers. 60% reduction in risk of progression. Risk of yeah, radiographic so, but progression. If there was, but if yeah. there was genuine synergy between the two, one might not get the results, for example, in magnitude in the HRR negative population, the hazard ratio was 1.09 for OS. And that hazard ratio doesn't suggest, 1.09 does not suggest synergy. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And every trial is different. Patient population is different. We know niraparib dose was reduced by 33% because of toxicity before the even the trial was started. So yes. could that have resulted in diminished efficacy? I, I don't but, want to criticize any trial, but I think these but, are different doses, different PARP inhibitors. Would, yeah. but, you would, but you would accept that the preclinical data is much less relevant than a big randomized trial. Even if the drugs are a bit different and the desire is not perfect, a big randomized trial with a hazard ratio of 1.09 is much more compelling than historical animal model data. Yes. Do you agree with that? I agree. Okay. Um, Tom, are you done with that point? I have my last question. I've got one more question, but Brian, you go. Okay. My last one. Neeraj, I want to ask about applicability of these data, really, Talapro and in particular, but all the trials in the modern era where, at least in my practice, I think many of ours, you know, patients are getting NHT up front, right? So they're getting ADT Abbey, ADT Enza, et cetera. And in, in Talapro, in your Lancet publication, only 6% got treatment with novel hormonal therapy, about 20-ish percent got chemo. That's probably about right. But does this impact on the applicability of these data you know, given that we would assume a, a much higher percentage are going to get NHT with their initial hormone therapy. Yeah, so I was really hoping, Brian, uh, you will ask this question. I aim to don't please. Say, don't yes. say it was fantastic, Niraj, please. <laughs> yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't handle twice. <laughs> will not. So first of all, we as oncologists, especially Brian, practicing in a elite cancer hospital in a <laughs> in a cancer hospital in a in a prostate cancer program, we see you see patients with metastatic disease way more often than a urologist in the real world who operates on a patient with localized localized prostate cancer who develop PSA recurrence and then PSA recurrence leads to start of androgen deprivation therapy which they continue for many years sometimes intermittent or continuous and then they develop MCRPC either on PSMA PET scan now or conventional scan. And we all know that the most common cause way to for prostate cancer to present is localized prostate cancer. 
either localized uh, uh, or either undergoing radiation therapy or surgery. And when they have PSA recurrence, they get it androgen deprivation therapy as monotherapy. That's the most common way for prostate cancer to become MCRPC, not the de novo or metastatic castration sensitive prostate cancer, which still is a minority of is a smaller proportion of patients presenting with that presentation. But we as medical oncologists tend to see them way more often. So we showed the real world data that Patients with metastatic castration sensitive prostate cancer, even in metastatic castration sensitive state, only 40%, 50% patients were receiving treatment with novel hormonal therapy. So if you combine these two data sets, if you combine the hormone sensitive metastatic setting, where only half of the patients receive novel hormonal therapy, and this is across the board, all Western countries, I don't I'm not even talking about emerging countries, right? emerging mm -hmm. economies. And then you talk about those localized prostate cancer patients who develop biochemically recurrent disease and then reach MCRPC through that route. I would estimate based on some of the data I have seen that majority of new MCRPC patients have not progressed on a novel hormonal therapy. OK, quick, quick follow up, Tom, then you can finish up. I take your point you know, that it's maybe not as prevalent as I would think in my little world, but um, does it impact your practice? So you see a patient with walks in the door with metastatic uh, hormone sensitive prostate cancer. So are you, for instance, let's take chemo out of the equation. Are you giving say ADT Abbey because you have this, you know, enzalutamide containing regimen with, you know, it's arguably the strongest ARP data uh, as a, as a next therapy. So, I use abiraterone quite often. I use all novel hormonal therapies, and the choice is mostly driven, frankly, by what patients can afford, how often they want to come to the clinic, and what drug interactions they not, have. Not driven by what you're going to use afterward. No. Correct. Um, Niraj, my last question, just are all these drugs the same? Is Alaparib more or less active? Is Tilaparib the best agent? Was there a problem with niraparib in magnitude? What's your take on this cross-trial comparison activity, or is it just a complete waste of time? <laughs> a complete waste of time. <laughs> Niraj, I'm going to say a couple of things. Firstly, magic. Uh, what a great study and great publications, and congratulations to you and the team on the FDA approval. Incredibly difficult to do. It's obviously a broader label, and I, you know, I am inclined to agree with you at the moment. I think this population is probably the right population. I think the ITT feels too wide for me and BRCA maybe feels too narrow. This might be the Goldilocks problem, um, population. So congratulations. What a fabulous contribution. Uh, so thank you very much. Thank you very much to both of you. Thanks so Ryan, much. Appreciate your time. Just before you leave, a couple of things. Uh, I wanted to uh, thank you, Niraj, for agreeing to attend our, our Euramigos annual meeting in 23 in Nashville uh, in November. Uh, and uh, we're really pleased you're coming back to that. Um, we're holding another meeting, so we're, we're kind of excited about that. And um, there'll be various competitions. And of course, there'll be some <laughs> golden tickets being given out. And we hope it's yep. going to be entertaining. But oh, there's going to be a Euramigos Cup awarded. Yes. Uh, it's a massive cup. It's like that big hockey trophy, ice hockey, which is a Same game I still cup. don't really understand. But <laughs> the cup is at least as big as the ice hockey cup, as far as I can see. <laughs> sort of. Yeah, not really. But 
yeah, lots of new stuff this year. So stay tuned. Noor, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Tom. Thanks so much. Have a good weekend. Yeah. You Bye-bye. too. Bye-bye.